Good afternoon. <laughs> it's very nice to see a, yeah, that's right. a really large, lovely audience. Oh, uh, and uh, it's for a really fantastic panel. I also want to welcome our C-SPAN audience uh, who, uh, who will be watching this excellent panel, which I, uh, I want to address <laughs> first, uh, introduce the different panelists. To my uh, immediate right is Hillel Fradkin, a colleague here at Hudson Institute. To his right is uh, Michael Duran, also uh, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And to his right, I want to welcome uh, someone who has not been on our Hudson podium before, Liel Leibovitz. And I think that Liel, Liel is a, a colleague of mine at Tablet Magazine. And I think that Liel is going to have a very interesting uh, perspective. Of course, Hillel and Mike will as well. But uh, Liel, I, I should say, it's not noted in the. Uh, Let's leave now. <laughs> it's not noted in the, in the identifications. But Liel's family is from Jerusalem. Uh, is from Jerusalem for many, many years, for forever. Um, so I think that he'll be able to, in addition to giving a an interesting historical perspective, he'll also have a very interesting um, personal perspective as well on uh, June 1967, which is, uh, and that's what the panel is about today: six days of fire. Israel and the June 1967 war, 50 years on. Uh, again, welcome, and why don't we take it away, Halal, if you would begin. Okay, thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Um, we are here primarily to talk about the long-term consequences of the Six-Day War, and rightly so. Um, but we thought it well to speak of the war itself and the situation on the eve of its at outbreak. And uh, that has fallen to me. Among other reasons, I'm old enough to remember it from direct experience. <laughs> and it was an experience so dramatic and moving that it is very hard to forget. <clears throat> I had for fresh reminders of it last week during a visit to Israel, most of all on Jerusalem Day, the annual celebration of the unification of a city. The natural starting point for considering the war is the situation of Israel in the spring of 1967, and a few reminders of its history to that date. At that time, Israel was a 19-year-old experiment, an experiment in Jewish statehood. That experiment was formally launched by the UN in November of 1947. In other words, Israel's establishment was authorized in the mode of international multilateralism, that we now tend to regard as sacrosanct, something that I think is forgotten about Israel. Nevertheless, it remained an experiment for several reasons. The Arab states that were its neighbors were utterly opposed to its existence, and even those who had initially supported Israel's establishment by the UN, including the US, came to, merit, to doubt the merits of that support. Why? It was for reasons that were succinctly restated on the eve of the Six-Day War by Hugh Smythe, the American ambassador to Damascus. Quote, on the scales we have Israel, an unviable client, whose value to the US is primarily emotional, balanced with the full range of the vital strategic, political, commercial, and economic interests represented by Arab states. This view was powerful in, in 1948. It anticipated that the Arab states on Israel's border, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and even implausibly Lebanon, and others besides would attack and seek to murder the Israeli state in its cradle. Israel seemed less an experiment than a fool's errand. 
and the Arab states did attack. Israel managed to survive the Arab War of 1948, but Israel's survival did not mean peace. For the next 19 years, the Arab states continued to reject any peace with Israel and attacked it wherever and whenever possible, principally by terrorist cross-border attacks. But their ultimate aim, freely announced, was to destroy Israel completely, to finish, as they put it, the business of 48, to remove the shame of 48. Still, un until 67, that aim remained unfulfilled and was not attempted. It was thought to require a grand coalition of Arab armies such as had been put together in 1948. Only then uh, could Israel's Arab enemies launch a full-scale attack and achieve their ultimate goals. But until 67, these conditions were not achieved and could not be. The most important reason was that the army of Egypt, the largest Arab army, could not be deployed to Israel's borders. It could not be because of the outcome of war in 1956, a war in which Israel was allied with Britain and France against Egypt. The armistice that ended that war provided for the partial demilitarization of the Sinai Peninsula, supervised by a UN peacekeeping force that acted or was supposed to act as a buffer. It also provided for the right of navigation through the Straits of Tehran for Israeli shipping. All that changed in the middle of May 1967, and fairly abruptly. A crisis erupted that lasted three long weeks and culminated in the Six-Day War. The immediate crisis was set in motion by Egypt and its president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Egypt reintroduced its army into the Sinai. It demanded and received the withdrawal of the UN force. Its forces moved closer to the Israeli border. Egypt formed a military alliance with, with Syria, which had, had had a lot to do with the instigation of the crisis, with a completely bogus claim that Israel was about to attack it. Subsequently, Jordan joined this alliance, placing its army uh, under Egyptian command. This was a particularly painful blow to Israel, for Jordan then ruled what is today called the West Bank. The location of the West Bank meant that in some places in central Israel, Israel's width was only nine miles. An attack from this quarter could sever Israel and destroy its coastal cities in the event that attack came. The encirclement of Israel was now complete, as it had been in 48. The whole Arab world was electrified by the prospect of a new war. And many countries rushed to join the fray, especially Iraq, which sent its forces into Jordan. Nasser took a final fateful step by closing the Straits of Tehran to Israel. Nasser knew and announced that this was tantamount to a declaration of war and welcomed the onset of that war, confident that he would win it. Its goal was forcefully stated by President Araf of Iraq, quote, our goal is clear, to wipe Israel off the face of the map. We shall, we shall God willing, meet in Tel Aviv and Haifa. Such a vision was repeated over and over by Nasser and all other Arab leaders and was 
uh, can remember vividly, available to uh, people in the United States to hear. In Israel, the government deliberated about what to do. Anyone uh, who thinks that it took a deci the decision to go eventually to war lightly um, should just consult the record. It could have no doubts that it faced the prospect of a war of extermination. Uh, at one point in the three weeks, Rabin Yitzhak Arin, who was chief of staff, said, it's now a question of to be or not to be. But apart from making military preparations, it took no definitive decision. Some in the government hoped that a peaceful resolution might be found. But in that event, Israel might have to accept the new status quo, Egypt's army on its border, and could not hope that even that status quo would be maintained. Its Arab enemies would conclude that Israel was afraid of a fight and could still, and probably would still, attack sometime later at a time of their choosing. At all events, an acceptable, peaceful resolution depended upon outside parties, and thus Israel undertook a major diplomatic effort, which lasted throughout those three weeks. For Israelis in general, the long wait of three weeks grew increasingly painful. It was painful for many of those who sympathized with Israel as well. Um, people were obliged to wonder whether they were about to witness a new Holocaust, only 20, some 20 years after the previous one. Confidence in the government faltered. Uh, eventually, to restore confidence, a unity government was formed, and Moshe Dayan, hero of 56, was appointed Minister of Defense. In Israeli memory, this period has its own name, Hahamtana, the waiting. In the end, the diplomatic efforts were a total and complete failure. Israel and its three million people found that it faced its encirclement alone, totally and utterly alone. Several of the Arab states had the Soviet Union as an ally, but Israel found it had no allies worthy of the name. France's Charles de Gaulle curtly repudiated an old alliance with Israel as well as the, as well as the 1957 guarantees. His phrase at the time, 67 is not 57. Britain was sympathetic, but offered no help, and effectively left its own guarantees in abeyance. America, too, was sympathetic, but not yet the ally it would come to be, even in terms of armaments. All of Israel's planes were French at the time, and most of its tanks were British. The attitude of President Johnson and his principal advisors was warmer than that expressed in the judgment I cited earlier, that of U.S. Ambassador Smythe. But it was informed by the same cold logic augmented by Cold War concerns, the possibility of a direct confrontation with the Soviet Union. After much consultation, the most President Johnson was willing to offer were continued efforts at mediation and a warning not to begin hostilities. His repeated message was, and this is a, a direct quote, Israel will not be alone unless it decides to go it alone. 
But Israel regarded such a, eventually regarded such a stance in the absence of real American support as untenable, and rightly so. In the end, on June 5th, Israel did go it alone, all alone, and prevailed all alone in a remarkable military campaign fought on three fronts. It was a spectacular victory by every measure, and there have been many descriptions of it. Let me offer one written by the well-known historian of World War I, Barbara Tuckman, who visited Israel both before and shortly after the war. Quote, a people considered for centuries non-fighters carried out in June against long odds the most nearly perfect military operation in modern history. Surrounded on three sides, facing vast superiority in numbers and amount of armament, fighting alone against enemies supported and equipped by a major power, and having lost the advantage of surprise, they accomplished the rarest of military feats, the attainment of exact objectives, in this case, the shattering of the enemy's forces and the securing of defensible lines within a given time and with absence of blunder. Not quite with the absence of blunder, but that's a longer story. We will now move to a discussion of the long-term consequences of this victory, but I would like to close with one observation about its immediate consequences for Israel at that time and also following on. No doubt Israel would have preferred a less lonely path to security, the security it achieved through that war. But in having to go it alone, it proved to itself two important things, and maybe to others. That it was not a mere client state, nor was it unviable. It had a chance, if regrettably necessarily a fighting chance, to be what it declares in its national anthem, to be a free people in its land. Beyond survival, there is a special virtue in that, and even a model in that. And in the last 50 years, Israel has made the most of that virtue. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Shepard. Thanks very much. <clears throat> Mike, if you, would, um, if you would like to follow up. Thanks. Uh, I'll say a few words um, about uh, the Egyptian role in all of this, and then, uh, and then um, a couple, have a couple of reflections on uh, the, the long-term meaning of the, uh, of the war. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of enduring mystery about, um, about the outbreak of the war, uh, because everyone agrees that this is Nasser's war. When I say everyone, uh, to prove that, uh, there's the, the historian Avi Schleim. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but uh, Avi Schleim has never had a sympathetic word to say about Israel. And in his history of the, uh, <laughs> the Arab-Israeli conflict, even, even he can't, uh, uh, can't but assign responsibility for the 67 war to Nasser. Um, and, and it's impossible because at every stage of the conflict, Nasser escalated when people were trying to, uh, to borrow a phrase from uh, President Obama, offer him an off-ramp. Uh, he, he didn't take the <laughs> off-ramp, and, uh, and he kept escalating. Um, and th the mystery in all of this is, why, why did he do it? Because at the time, um, the, the best units of his army were bogged down in a war in Yemen. So he was totally unprepared for this conflict. Um, and, and, and couldn't have won it. And yet he escalated and escalated to the point where 
at a certain, after he's remilitarized the Sinai, he basically says, Israel has no choice. But I think we have put Israel in a position where it has no choice but to attack. And so you either have to say he's totally irrational or he was playing a game that we don't understand very well. And I'll just give you a couple of thoughts about what I think the game he was playing was. I think that this may be one of the questions that people will never be able to answer. Maybe somebody will answer it definitively. But it's kind of a mystery that continues to intrigue me. And I think perhaps because of a little bit of self-interest, I just wrote a book about 1956. I think the key is 1956. No, I was going to mention that also, that you have deep insight into what you thought about Nasser from that period on. I do have a tendency to see everything as going back to 1956. The title of the book is Ike's Gamble, still available from books. But in 56, Nasser lost the war against Israel, but he won politically. Britain, France, and Israel teamed up against Egypt. He defeated the Egyptian army, but the superpowers got involved, and the United States in particular forced the Israelis out. The Israelis occupied all of Sinai. They forced them out with minimal concessions, the concessions being the ones that Nasser overturned in 1967, meaning the placement of the United Nations emergency force in Sinai and guarantees about shipping in the Straits of Tehran. So I think that's the key. That's the world in which that was Nasser's greatest moment, the rise of Nasser as a kind of unstoppable political force in the Arab world was 1956. America handed him this incredible political victory. And so I think in 67, he thought he could replay 56. He thought that he could escalate things to such a point that even if there was a conflict with Israel, a conflict that he might not win on the ground, he would still come out the political winner. So his major miscalculation, he made two major miscalculations in 67. One of them clearly was the military miscalculation. The Israelis destroyed his air force in record time, and they did it alone. In 56, they had the French to help them in the air. In 67, they didn't. They did it all alone, and it was, as Barbara Tuckman said, a near-perfect military operation. And so they obliterated his forces so quickly that there wasn't time for the superpowers to step in and hand him a victory to snatch defeat for the Israelis from the jaws of their military victory. The second miscalculation he made was about the Americans. Since he had encountered the Americans back from when he took power in 1952, the Americans had been completely allergic to association with Zionism. They were afraid to be seen to be on the side of the Israelis in a war against the Arabs, and they were very eager to distance themselves 
from from Israel. And that was the that's what generated Eisenhower's decision in '56 to roll them out of the out of the Sinai. By '67, that had changed considerably. There were still such impulses in the State Department, for sure, absolutely. But I, I once had Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith, that, that, the, the, those, those attitudes were well represented. But I had a, a, a discussion uh, uh, with Harold Saunders, once uh, former, uh, 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 former uh, foreign service officer who was uh, uh, very, uh, had been the chief of staff, I believe it was, to Henry Kissinger. Um, and he was among those who, uh, he was the assistant secretary for the Near East at one point. And uh, Saunders was among those who was very interested in, uh, in maintaining good relations with Nasser and believed that, our, that the U.S. association with Israel was poisoning the relations with, with Nasser. And he told me that Nasser gave a speech uh, uh, in 1966, I believe it was, um, in which he said, uh, you know, uh, in which it was full of uh, fire and brimstone and defiance of the Americans, and, and, and he said a line in there that, and if the Americans don't like it, they can go drink the Red Sea, right? So no, they, they can take a flying leap. Uh, and Saunders... Saunders said that from that moment, for some reason, I don't, I don't know why, I never went to research the, the exact moment of that speech and why it had such an effect, but Saunders told me that from that moment on, the Americans were the, the, at the highest level were done with Nasser, right? They, the idea, he said, no, none of us could possibly put forward a proposal to woo Nasser <coughs> because he had, so, uh, uh, he had so undermined his own position in, in, in Washington. And that was against the background of this war in Yemen. The war in Yemen was a, was a, was a superpower, uh, you know, proxy fight. So the Americans, the Saudis, uh, uh, and the Yemeni royalists were on one side, and the, the Soviets, the Egyptians, and the, uh, and the, and the insurgents were on, on, on the other side in Yemen. And we, we saw it in those, in, in, exactly in those, uh, in, in those terms. Um, and so when Nasser... Uh, blundered into this war, if you will, or if you, don't, if you want to say he provoked this war for whatever purposes uh, he, he provoked it, um, the Americans were not sympathetic at all. And there you find something very interesting. At, right, right when the war ends, uh, the U.S. Uh, comes up with, and, you know, working with the Soviets, but it's an American idea, comes up with U.N. Resolution 242. And, and to the essence of 242 is, uh, is territory for peace. This remains the the basic idea to this day about how to make peace between Israel and its uh, uh, and, and and its neighbors, and that's a uh, I mean it's a very simple, commonsensical idea, but it's antithetical to the viewpoint that was that was dominant in Washington back back in '56, uh, when it was you know get Israel out of the Sinai in return for no concessions from Nasser. We can't be seen to be using Israeli military power in order to get concessions from the, from the, uh, from the Egyptians. Um, that, that, once that idea is eroded, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, paves the way for the, the concept that you saw in the, later saw in the Nixon administration, where Nixon and Henry Kissinger saw Israel, Israeli military power, which was, as, as Hillel explained, you know, proved itself in 67, as an, as an asset for the United States mm -hmm. in the Cold War, where we, we can use it to put pressure on the allies of the Soviet Union, and if they want to be relieved of pressure from is the Israeli military, they have to come to us. 
right? The Soviet Union can't help them with that. Only, only we can help with that. Now, we weren't quite there in 67, but once you get to the land for peace idea, that's the beginning of the idea that Israel, Israeli power is actually um, a, a benefit to the United States strategically and not, and not a liability, which is an incredibly important turning point. Now, just a couple of other thoughts about the turning point, and then I'll uh, pass it over to Liel. Um, one is, I mean, really, as you, as you hear me talking, you know, saying Soviet Union, United States, and so on, it was another world, right? It was the height of the Cold War, and this was a, the Middle East was a proxy, kind of, uh, a proxy arena in the, uh, in the Cold War, and that world is gone. Uh, there's something else that happened in 67. The biggest winner in 1967 um, uh, was not the Israelis. Uh, the biggest winner in 1967 were the Saudis. Uh, and it's kind of interesting if you think about where we are, uh, wh wh where we are today, um, because uh, after after '67, the Arabs meet at Khartoum, the famous Khartoum uh, uh, Pan-Arab summit, which which produced the famous three no's of Khartoum: uh, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations uh, with Israel, and no peace uh, with Israel. That was the that was the public slogan of Khartoum. Behind the scenes, the real work went, uh, took place, and the real work was that the, uh, that the, the Egyptians made a rapprochement with the Saudis. Uh, they had been so defeated, so humiliated by the Israelis that they had to start thinking about pulling out of Yemen, uh, and they cut a deal with the Saudis uh, where they agreed to end their propaganda against the Saudi monarchy, and in return, the Saudis started giving them money, uh, which is, marks the turning point. You know, until that moment, the Egyptians were, uh, Egypt was the center of the Arab world. It was the dominant power in, in, in the Arab world. And 67 really marks the moment when uh, the Saudis sort of come into their own. And that's the world we know today where uh, among the Arabs, we always think of the Saudis as being the, the, uh, of being the, the leading, um, uh, of being the leading power. Um, the other big change that takes place, <clears throat> and then I'll, Pass it to Liel, or two others, I'll quickly. One is, obviously, I've already said it in, in not so many words. This is, this is effectively the end of Nasserism. Uh, Nasser, Nasser dies uh, three years later, um, but uh, uh, the idea of Egypt as the leader of the Arab world and the leading, uh, the leading power against the Israelis, it's already starting to shift here. We do have the 73 war, which is, of course, a huge trauma for the Israelis and in many ways a more, you know, greater existential threat than 67 was. But 73 is interesting if you look at it from the, from the Egyptian point of view because the goal of 73 was to get out of the conflict, was to, we, to, to deal a big enough blow to Israel that it would wake up the superpowers and make them come in to help the Egyptians get out of the, uh, 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 get out of the conflict. Uh, it wasn't to use the conflict for other purposes as the Egyptians were doing in 67. It was really to, to, uh, to get out of the conflict. Of course, we have the, uh, uh, I don't want to be too teleological about it. You have the, the war of attrition and then the 73 war, which from an Israeli point of view, both of them were very serious, uh, uh, very serious conflicts. But from an Egyptian point of view, you can see that something shifts dramatically in, in 67. And then the last point I'll make is that as the Egyptians stop, move out of the, uh, you know, start, start thinking about how to get out of this conflict, they start playing up the point uh, that th this, this conflict at its essence is a conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And that it's a, it's a question of national determination for the Palestinian people 
rather than a conflict of Egypt and Arabism against imperialism and, and, uh, and uh, Israel is an outpost for imperialism and so on and so forth. Uh, the, the Arabs in general redefine it as Palestinian nationalism versus, uh, uh, versus Israel, which brings the PLO to the fore, and that, that, that leads us to, the, uh, you know, to the, the peace process that we're familiar with from, from uh, post-73 on, which focuses on the, the Palestinian issue. Thanks, Mike. That's terrific. I, I, I'd, also, I'd never thought about um, that Resolution 242 as kind of being the, the premise of that's how the United States would eventually look at uh, Israel as a, as, as a Cold War asset. And so that's really interesting. Um, Liel, thank you. You could uh, round of applause. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so you know, as as Lee mentioned, m my family has um, been in Jerusalem for a while. They arrived sometime in the fifties, uh, the seventeen fifties, <laughs> um, which means mainly that you know Jerusalem syndrome. Uh, has run in the family for, for about nine or ten generations there. So uh, what I'm about to say today is uh, going to sound, I, I, I hope, profoundly crazy, especially <laughs> next to my, my two studious uh, and serious colleagues. Um, the first thing uh, that I would like to say, and, and it is perhaps uh, a tad uncharitable, uh, in an event dedicated to the uh, colossal historical meaning of 1967, uh, is that 1967 actually mattered not a bit. Uh, and, and here is why I say that. I say that because I went to school uh, in Tel Aviv University, which was established over the ruins of three Palestinian villages uh, that were destroyed uh, and abandoned in 1948. Uh, and so if you're looking uh, for some sort of vantage point uh, at which to start telling some sort of meaningful story about contemporary uh, Israel, uh, about the Middle East and Israel's place in it, uh, 67 seems a bit arbitrary. Uh, for that matter, 48 does as well. Uh, I'm not a batting man, but if I, if I were, my money would be somewhere around 1897, uh, when the first major group of Jews descended from the first ship uh, and started the first real uh, movement called the First Aliyah. Uh, to repopulate uh, in, in a massive uh, way uh, the, the, the much-too-promised land uh, with its previous inhabitants. Um, I think that, uh, in a way, uh, what 67 did uh, is provide this kind of major, almost distraction. Uh, Hillel had a, a beautiful phrase that I'm, I'm, I'm going to bungle, so I'm not even going to try, but it had to do with multilateralism. I think it provided a deeply comforting uh, prism through which to look at this conflict because now we're looking at it and we're seeing something that is solvable. Uh, here's a problem, and if only we poured enough uh, you know, goodwill into it, thinks John Kerry before he falls asleep at night, uh, we, can, we can make this work because this is a problem of negotiations between two sides that are, that are profoundly willing uh, to negotiate some sort of solution. Uh, I think uh, both people uh, increasingly and understandably uh, have a very different perspective and, in a sense, uh, have always had that perspective. I think that the Israelis uh, may be looking at their neighbors and saying, well, um, do you remember the Jebusites and the Hittites? 
these were once mighty people, uh, they're nowhere to be seen, we could wait. We have all the time in the world. And I think the Palestinians are looking at the Israelis and saying, oh yeah, well, do you remember the Ottomans and the Brits? Uh, those were once mighty empires uh, who occupied this land too. We could wait because we too have all the time in the world. Uh, I think that is a, that is a much more, uh, to use a favorite term, uh, organic uh, way of understanding the reality that both peoples had. And, and in a way, 67 ha had been this kind of major 50-year detour in which everyone's like, but, but this resolution and this negotiation and this process and how could we solve it? And I think we're kind of slowly, slowly climbing away from that. Um, interestingly enough, that's not the really crazy thing that I have to say. The, the really crazy thing that I would like to say uh, is sort of contradictory, of course, to the first thing. Uh, and that is well, we'll that prove in, that you're crazy. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, in in one in one very very important and non-trivial way, 67 mattered a tremendous deal. Uh, it mattered a tremendous deal because it revealed, uh, and and I use you know I use this term in all of its, uh, my teleological. I like that term, but but almost theological awe uh, to to many Israelis uh, in in a strange way the true purpose of their national project. Um, try asking today, 146 years uh, after the Risorgimento, uh, try asking Italians how many of them identify as Garibaldists. And they look at you saying, yeah, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, an overwhelming majority of, of Israeli Jews strongly define themselves as Zionists, which if you think about it is almost absurd if you understand Zionism as a political movement to reestablish a Jewish homeland in the state of Israel. Well, that mission, to quote another great American thinker, has been accomplished, uh, you know, sometime between 60 odd years ago or 50 years ago. That, that mission uh, has been uh, secured once the modern state of Israel has been established, why are we still talking about ourselves as Zionists? Uh, it, the answer that I would like to give, and it, uh, it has its origins uh, in, in a very, very good book, uh, almost as good as Mike's, mm -hmm. uh, which is the Bible, um, <laughs> is, is that um, the mission uh, of Zionism has never been uh, solely political. Uh, I, I, I'm almost tempted to say not even mainly political. Uh, the mission of Zionism has always been uh, to fulfill, uh, here comes the crazy part, the messianic yearnings uh, that are at the very core of the historical thrust and the religious belief that have kept Jews as Jews as a people. Uh, this is the reason why this uh, kind of ragtag movement attracted people whose vision of what kind of state they would eventually establish were radically different. You had, you know, Marxists who wanted this kind of, you know, utopia. Uh, you had religious Jews. You had cultural Jews. You had people who agreed not a lick about what type of polity would actually come to fruition once this great big miracle occurs. And yet they comfortably uh, banded together and continue to band together on, under this banner. Uh, the reason for this, and, and I will not get, you know, too, too philosophical here, but uh, the reason for this is because the contract, uh, the reason for the return, the reason for the yearning, 
always had to do not just with the establishment of a national homeland for purposes of self-definition, defense, etc., but rather for the fulfillment of some deeper religious understanding, uh, meaning that the, that the nation did not just have to be a nation, but it had to be a perfect nation. Uh, this is why when, when Moses sends 10 spies and they return and they say, dude, uh, not so much milk and honey, a lot of angry people who really want to kill us. Uh, Moses kills them because they fail to understand uh, that what makes the promised land promised isn't some inherent quality. What makes the promised land promised is our ability to inhabit it and make it an exemplary uh, place uh, for, for a higher type of living here on earth. Uh, and so up until 1967, uh, it was very easy for a majority of Israelis to simply ignore this notion because, indeed, it sounds rather untenable and rather sort of emotionally, mentally unstable. Uh, up until 1967, it was quite possible to focus on what appeared to be, and, and indeed were, I, I don't want to belittle them, uh, real uh, existential challenges uh, of anything from strategic depth to, you know, kind of building this, and I love the word Hillel used, that this, continuing this experiment. Um, 67 unleashed all that uh, because it, in a weird way, removed uh, the last barrier uh, towards the understanding of the project. Something very, very interesting happened, and it happened literally. Uh, about a week and a half after the war, a host of rabbis uh, got together in Jerusalem uh, and sort of still shaken uh, by this great and unexpected victory. Uh, and I, I know this because some of my relatives were literally in the room. Um, they contemplated whether now that this uh, miraculous occurrence is upon us, it was perhaps time to change some of the prayers in classical Jewish liturgy uh, that specifically speak of the, uh, of the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and, and our, our kind of mourning for it, uh, whether it was time to remove some of these lines from the prayers. Uh, and they decided almost unanimously, which is very hard for Jews to do, on anything, especially on things like that, uh, that the prayers ought not to be changed because the mission had not been accomplished, uh, because the actual unification of the city uh, was not the end. It was the beginning. Uh, it was now time to embark on the greater project, which has always been the project of, of Zionism, which is a creation of a more and more and more and more perfect union that you know expresses itself in, in such platitudes like light unto the nations. Um, and I think 67 freed a lot of people to continue and do that. And the change in Israeli society and Israeli politics uh, has been radical. Again, we're looking here at all the wrong things. The energy goes to, well, but what about the settlements? Would you move the settlements? Would they be beyond this line or that line? Are they seizing land? Is it in accordance with the Geneva Convention? Well, these are all very interesting questions that people uh, have spent a lot of time kind of you know debating with but the bigger and more intricate and more interesting change uh, is the gradual uh, but undeniable and very very convincing shift that a huge swath of, of Israeli society has experienced in the last 50 years uh, I don't want to say towards religiosity because that is a, a highly explosive term but toward an increasing understanding 
that the nature of our national project isn't to build another you know berlin or dc or paris on the mediterranean uh, it is something very very different and it has to do in some in some deeply intricate ways uh, with faith uh, with jewish faith and, and in the way we understand it uh, this is why you could see all of a sudden weird hybrid uh, huge political parties like uh, the Jewish home uh, that have in them both quote-unquote traditionally religious politicians and uh, very quote-unquote secular politicians uh, because the actual level of observance uh, isn't and in a weird way has never been the yardstick. Uh, it's, it's the coming together over the understanding that we're trying to do something very, very different. We're trying to build a Jewish state and understand it as such uh, and that the project is a project that has been defined not in June of 67, but in one June many, 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 many moons ago in, in Sinai. Um, and 67 unleashed uh, that, that yearning. Uh, it has freed us to do so, uh, and the consequences of that are strangely far more outreaching than, uh, far-reaching than anything that I think anyone in this room could even begin to fathom. That's great, Leo. Thanks very much. Um, so, Leo, I want to stick with you for a second, then I want to come back to Mike and Mike and Hallel. What I want to now, since we've sort of we've led up to uh, we've led up to 1967, we're in the middle of 1967 with uh, with Hallel, Mike, and Leo. Now I want to look a little bit past it and just ask you to continue a little bit. Leo and I were, have been speaking before about this. Um, so if you just want to continue a little bit more in this vein, what does it look like post-1967? Because in some ways, I, I think in some ways, when we were speaking last night, and also today, you're saying that at 67, everyone understood, it was very clear what the project was. Now, in, in, in Washington, in the U.S. press, people who are interested in Israel, look at Israel, you know, you know the different things they say, oh, is Israel becoming more religious? What does it look like? Is this a problem? Look at all these people. Um, but you're saying that this is that this became clear in 1967. What we're seeing now is the you know what we're seeing now is. Well, I'll, I'm going to leave it to you to explain. But I just want to say I'm going to ask Mike and Halal to sort of describe also what the region has looked like since '67. Mike talked about that a bit, and also let's talk a little bit about um, about how American policy has changed since 1967, looking at Israel and the region generally. So, Bilal, if you could, if we can stick with you for a second. So, um, you know, this is, this is something I, I, I learned a lot from Mike. Uh, for example, how, how much, uh, if you think of, of America and how much uh, of our political energies were consumed by the Cold War uh, and how the Cold War made possible uh, alliances uh, between parties that uh, on the surface seem to have very little in common, right? You had kind of traditional conservatives and traditional liberals uh, coming together over what both could agree was a perceived threat that had to be met. And once that threat went away, uh, all of a sudden, both of these camps had to define the true essence of their, of their, of their ideology. Uh, we're seeing the outcomes of that right now, since November, in grand operatic fashion. Uh, I think something similar happened in Israel. I think before 1967, uh, many 
many kind of parties, uh, and this, by the way, I think is also very uh, uh, pertinent to, to a big swaths of, of the American Jewish community, um, could weave together a narrative that was almost uh, above reproach. It was a narrative of experimentation. Here's this 19-year-old you know, uh, nation uh, is attempting <laughs> some sort of David versus Goliath thing. Uh, it is still sufficiently steeped in uh, its socialist background or, or history or roots uh, for people of a very, very, very wide uh, range of political affiliations to feel uh, sort of this mm. deep, deep affinity towards it. Uh, and that simply built huge coalitions uh, and, and, and kind of created these camps uh, in support for, for what was understood to be the project in ways that were fairly unproblematic. Uh, when 67 occurred, that kind of ceased to be the case because then the questions that Israelis had to answer uh, was a far starker one. Uh, well, okay, we've removed the last barrier, quote-unquote, uh, the last kind of big existential militaristic program. We have reunified Jerusalem. We are, we're here, we're present. Uh, what now? Uh, and I think that uh, big portions, although I think they're diminishing and dwindling uh, daily, of uh, the Israeli public said, well, now uh, we are going to create a, a great uh, nation state, uh, and we are going to do it by passing laws that are widely understood, uh, universally, cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanly, cosmically, uh, to be the sort of laws that nation states that are responsible and progressive pass. Uh, and there was an, an equally large part, and growing larger by the day, that said, well, wait a minute. Yes, we do have uh, a firm commitment to democratic principle, but at the same time, um, we also have an idea that this really is and has always been and ought to always remain a different kind of state. And, and in a way, all sorts of conflicts that never existed before um, begin to bubble to the surface, questions about you know, what is the nature of, uh, you say, businesses uh, on the Sabbath, questions about the role of, you know, the rabbinate in public life, questions about really kind of essential issues of, of defining what the state ought to be and how it ought to be. <clears throat> um, and, and that type of process, and, and we're seeing ripples of that happen still. And I think to, to get for a second to, 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 the, to the kind of Jewish community, but I think that actually also sends shockwaves uh, into, into much of world Jewry, and, and particularly American Jewry. I think one of the reasons uh, that you're seeing so many young American Jews distance themselves from Israel today isn't because of the quote-unquote occupation. Because, again, if you do believe that this is just a, a solution, you know, a problem awaiting its solution, you could, you could advocate one or another. It's because I think the nation itself is becoming unrecognizable uh, and insupportable, or insufferable even, to, to people whose identity is so thoroughly uh, universalist, secular, uh, cosmopolitan as to not recognize a project that is a thoroughly Jewish project, uh, unabashedly, uncomplicatedly, proudly, uh, religiously tinted nation state. Um, that is a type of drama that, in a way, is not that different from dramas that we see everywhere from, from Brexit to here, right? It's a question of what type of essential nation you want to have. Uh, it has brewed, uh, Israel is very frequently the canary in the coal mine, 
it has brewed in Israel about 50 years earlier than it did in the rest of the world. But, but Israel's answer was, was sort of very decisive in one direction, and now we're living out this drama. Thanks, Dave. That's fantastic. I, I, I want to go to Mike for a second because Mike has so – it's a great transition because Mike has just written a really interesting uh, – very interesting article on Europe, partly having to do with, with Brexit. And I, I, I know you've been thinking about this for a while, uh, as, as well as your excellent work on the Middle East, but about Europe and the United States and what these different ideas of nationalism, uh, how, they're, how they're playing out. I'm curious to know if you've if, – if Israel has been – uh, an example in this way, and if this is uh, if this was coming out of 1967, this was a, an instance that while part of the world was moving this way towards uh, globalization, towards uh, lack of borders, that Israel after 67 was showing one thing, and now this is what we're seeing both in Europe and and in the United States. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought to connect up those things uh, uh, in this conversation, but I, I think I can do it um, at the risk of... Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, man. The, no, yeah, right. sorry. No, no, it's, it's no, my, it's my fault. I mean, no, I know. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I, I, can, I think I can, I can do it without being too uh, reductive. I, I, there, there are two schools of thought in, go, which go back to 67 in, in America. <laughs> about, about Israel. And w one school of thought says that Israel is a strategic liability to the United States. And the other one says Israel is a strategic asset. And the, the school that says that Israel is a liability also says at the same time that it's a, li it's a liability um, and it, it, it is the central issue. The, the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Arab-Israeli conflict, is the central strategic issue in the in, in the Middle East. Um, and what makes it a liability? A li it's a liability because our association with Israel is alienating uh, the Arabs and the Muslims and the entire third world writ, uh, writ large. And uh, even further, it's alienating us from, uh, these days you'd, you'd hear you know, in, the, in the halls of the State Department, it's alienating us from the European Union uh, uh, and so on. And there's a kind of community of nations out there and we have to be responsive to its concerns. And so Therefore, the job of the United States is to peace process, right? The peace process is a strategic, strategically central aspect of American policy. Even if, and, and, and I think President Obama, if you read his com comments carefully, was, was pretty explicit about this. Our job is to peace process even if we don't believe that at the end of this process there's going to be a peace, right? Because this is a kind of outreach that we do this is the way that we show respect for the, the community of the, the community of, uh, of nations, um, and behind that idea is is the kind of universalist uh, idea that uh, that Liel is saying um, the you know more more secular use the word rootless cosmopolitan I think the the, co <laughs> the cosmopolitanism of the uh, of of Jewish youth in uh, in, uh, in America today uh, the kind of globalist uh, the the globalist community on the other side uh, the people who say uh, the, the people who say that that Israel is not a liability and that it, that it's an asset that that uh, frame of reference or that that position resonates very deeply with American nationalists, right? And evangelicals are re re religious people. So the unification of Jerusalem 
in, in 67, that was a religious event for the Jews, but it was also a religious event for, for Gentiles. And, and all along the way, there's all along the, the, the from, from the beginning of the Zionist project, there has been a strong uh, Gentile Zionism that has, um, that has supported the, 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 the project. Um, our, our colleague here, Walter Russell Lee, drew everyone's attention to something in, in 1891 called the Blackstone Memorial. Um, uh, Blackstone, uh, William Blackstone was a famous American businessman. Uh, he made a lot of money, in, grew up very poor, made a lot of money in, uh, in real estate. When he made enough money to live for comfortably forever, he devoted his life to Jesus. He wrote a book, Jesus is Coming, uh, uh, analyzing the, the Ecclesiastes to show that, uh, that, uh, that the return of Jesus was prophesied and, and, and near. That book was a bestseller for years in America. Uh, he then, in, in 1891, petitioned the president um, and said, the Ottoman Empire is crumbling. It's the job of the United States. This is, this is five years before, four years before Herzl's Jewish state, uh, that the Ottoman Empire is crumbling. It's the job of the United States to return the Jews to the, uh, to the promised land. Um, that letter was signed by the editor of the New York Times. Things have changed. <laughs> the editor of the New York Times, the editor of the Washington Post. Again, things have changed. The, uh, uh, the, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, the um, uh, J.P. Morgan, um, uh, Rockefeller, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the American political, commercial, intellectual elite all signed that. So there's a strain that, and that hasn't, that hasn't, that, that may have diminished somewhat in America, but it's still there. America is a pro-Israel country, and if you just need to, many of you per, perhaps are not tuning into Mike Huckabee, but Mike, Mike Huckabee is more in tune with that America, right? It's still out there, and politicians are very much, uh, are very much aware of it, and that, that America says, that that it's in the national interest of the United States to to to, uh, to support Israel. So a lot of what we do in Washington, we think we're that the, we're these different positions that we're taking about Israel are, um, you know, strategic positions about, you know, all these arguments over settlements and everything are are are, are about bringing peace between Israelis and Palestinians, and they are certainly that. But they're also signposts in a big cultural battle between. Two Americas, one that's part of this globalist, universalist effort, and another one that says, America, by God. Halal, right. if I can ask you, um, so what did, that, what did that argument look like, um, the argument that Mike is describing? What did it look like in Washington for the last, since 67, the argument between, you know, the argument in Washington between American policymakers? Some who are saying Israel is a strategic ally, Israel is a strategic liability. What are the different, and how did that play regarding the, you know, how did that play regarding our relations also uh, with uh, with Arab states and and and, and Muslim states? I, if I may, I think I'll decline to address oh, that. Okay. Okay, because I think Mike uh, has, you know, defined uh, probably defined what the framework of discussion has been. It seems to me that. Oh, but in, in general, over time, the strategic asset of, of the strategic liability argument has gotten stronger, and it's gotten stronger partially because of uh, many circumstances that have changed in the world. The, the uh, ongoing 
collapse of the Middle East into violence and so forth has, has not made <laughs> arrangements with right. uh, the Middle East look all that attractive. And therefore, uh, the fact that we are not, <coughs> um, we're losing out on a chance to um, uh, be cozy with people who don't like Israel uh, has looked you know, like less substantial. I did want to comment on a couple of things that both Liel and, and Mike have said, which I think are really quite important. Um, uh, since uh, since uh, Liel offered us a midrash or a homily, I'm inclined to address him as Reb Liel, but that might insult Mike, so I'll call him Reb Mike. <laughs> uh, and these are somewhat separate points, but Mike, I think, is correct in saying that the, the crucial factor here uh, was Egypt and and I think properly traces the source of Nasser's um, approach to what had happened in 56 or for that matter what happened in 48 he was a soldier who was captured during the 48 war um, by the Israeli army um, I'm less sure that he didn't think that uh, the Egyptian army could, and the Arab forces in general could win. And that's connected with, <clears throat> I mean, he no doubt what didn't, wasn't completely unaware of some of the difficulties. But I think it was, but his confidence, or such confidence that he had in, in an Arab victory, was, came from the way in which, um, what was wrong about Israel in the first place, that is, I referred before to the shame of 48. The shame of 48 was that um, Jews had beaten Arabs and Muslims. And there remained, a, that seemed at first impossible. Um, and it was explained away twice, first in 48 by claimed complicity of imperialist powers. The same thing happened in 56. And that, that had a very strong, that argument was made by them, and I think it also persuaded them that they really had never faced Israel in a fair fight, because if they did, um, they could take them, because Jews are not fighters. That's as Mrs. Stuckman said. And, um, and so whatever reservations he had, as things went on in the crisis during the three weeks, every, everything conspire to encourage, you know, give him uh, confidence, further confidence. Everyone's backing off. And, um, but I do, but, and what is very significant then is the, is the defeat. Because the defeat, um, first of all, it doesn't dispel that argument uh, that Israel only survives because it, it has uh, foreign, uh, European, Christian, whatever, imperialist support, but it, it it becomes more and more implausible. And that leads, as you said, to the sort of decline of Nasserism altogether um, and, the, and the rise of the Saudis. But also, and, and this goes along with it, you didn't state it, but it's, it, I'm sure it was implied in it, the rise of an alternative vision of what is, uh, Middle East politics should be, which is Islamist. Uh, a, a reconciliation with the Islamist forces in Egypt in particular, as undertaken by Anwar Sadat, and all the subsequent uh, developments. The, the last thing about, on, on that score I want to say is the shift to the Palestinian issue. Um, 
I think it always bears emphasizing that when, it, when the Arabs attacked in 48 and when they fought, attacked, or were about to attack in 67, the goal always was to destroy the, the Jewish state. Uh, it was to destroy Israel. It was not to establish a Palestinian state. And had it been so, there would have been one in 48 after the fighting had stopped. Had they won in 67, I'm, it, I, I think it's 100 to 1 against them having established a Palestinian state. Then they would have done what they did in 48. The various victors would have divided up the spoils. The odd thing about the, Israel's victory is that it, um, paradoxically, created the conditions for the establishment of the Palestinian state, because the Arabs would never would have done it. That that's and and in fact that's uh, sort of happened. Gaza is a Palestinian state, and maybe there'll be a uh, Palestinian state in the West Bank. So uh, it 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 had that bizarre effect uh, within within the contours of what came to be the pal the Palestinian initiative of the Arab states. On the on Reb Leal's uh, observations. Uh, First of all, in, in large part, I think you're correct. I would say that the, and you're also correct that the people who built Israel, founded Israel, I mean, from, say, the late 19th century on, had, were very many, were, there were great differences among them. They did share one thing in common, a kind of crazy messianic or utopian, not messianic, it was utopian, because only some of them believed a messiah would bring it. Um, and um, uh, but after that, there was considerable room for disagreement. They didn't all pull together so easily. Uh, my own parents were members of the far left party, Mapam, and I'm sure that you know uh, they didn't, or their their friends. They were fairly moderate in their views, but some of their friends certainly had not, didn't didn't see didn't have fellow feeling uh, with the other utopian element streams. Um, but what they did have, and this is, I think, one, one can't forget that you're right in a way that the project has reached, reached a certain goal, uh, the founding of the, uh, the state. But then the state takes on a, a reality, a real reality, so that, for example, uh, communists uh, or left-wing Mapamniks could fight shoulder to shoulder with uh, religious guys in 67 and in 73 and so forth. It still, f they feel that um, bond. Um, in fact, the question or your observation is extremely important, but I think very complicated. Probably we can't uh, explore it adequately here. There, I think there are two things involved. One is um, and this particularly pertains, I think, to your, uh, your remark about the, uh, the, the divide between uh, American Jews and Israel. Uh, in the course of creating a state, they also created a different type of person. And Israelis, I, and I think this was noticeable a long time ago, it, it took on its, it, it was denominated in, in, with the term Sabra, that there's a, a different type of Israeli personality. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but I think it's 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 also true um, in general that Israelis Israeli Jews are different than other Jews. 
and it's a function of, first of all, of the of the experience of, of living in that country, and also whether and also of having to to answer the question or have an answer to the question you pose. It, what is the mission of Israel? Is it merely to be um, a uh, you know a modern nation state along the lines of the other modern nation states, um, or is it to, to have something distinctively Jewish about it? And uh, by the way, since you cited the Bible, that tension is there in the Bible to, from the get-go. Uh, you know, it isn't just a bromide to, to speak of a light unto the nations. So, but in Israel, that issue has to be worked out in a living, uh, through living experience. In the United States, you get your choice. You can be, you know, you can uh, accommodate yourself to one side of the equation that, that Mike uh, describes so very well, you know, uh, enlightened, modern, postmodern, universalist, and so forth, or, uh, you know, live in, in those parts of Williamsburg that haven't been taken over by hipsters. So, uh, uh, you have you can choose in Israel. That's that's not possible. And I think, you know, it, I don't know how much Israelis misunderstand it. I'm pretty sure an enormous number of American Jews misunderstand this. Uh, that that is um, those aren't simply alternative choices in, in Israel, and they have to be be worked through. And um, and and will be worked through, I mean, with uh, over time. Perhaps, um, you know, in the combination of the two, uh, in the end may look not so, they put it, so repugnant to or, or, or alien to, to Americans or American Jews, but it will certainly be, be different. I mean, it may be. Um, I mean, you talked about the creation of uh, Paris or London on the Eastern Mediterranean. Really, the the other option is Silicon Valley on the uh, yes. on the Eastern Mediterranean. And Israelis of, of practically all uh, religious persuasions gravitate to that. So uh, that's over time that uh, that will well, we'll see what what emerges uh, from that. Yeah, did you want to? So you're taking notes. Did you want to respond to some of that? Well, it's 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 funny, right? Because this is it's. I was telling I was telling Mike as the as the fire raged on um, <laughs> that that it, 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 in a way I, I didn't fully even as I was sort of speaking didn't fully anticipate that these connections would be made. But I, I'm I'm wondering now. You said you know in America you can make a choice. In Israel, it's less. Um, it's as clear. I'm, I'm wondering again, going solely off the canary in the coal mine, you know, theory of history here, uh, which is problematic and one that I don't fully subscribe to. But I, I'm actually wondering if the rest of the world actually has a choice or not. I'm wondering if these big cataclysmic elections that we're seeing now aren't basically the same conflict. And in a way, I don't think that you know, building Silicon Valley on the Mediterranean is in any way incompatible. Uh, with choosing to live out a certain kind of nationalist values, I, I don't, you know, I, I, being myself firmly in in one side of this debate, right? Uh, I don't particularly um, accept the assertion that 
uh, you know, enlightenment, not as a historical movement, but as a kind of, you know, uh, divine charge uh, lies uh, or, or progress or, or all things good, true, and efficient uh, lie necessarily with, uh, with those who also advocate the kind of universalist, globalist approach. I, I think that part of the genius of Israel, and again, uh, unleashed in 67 because the project then got so big, is that uh, or, 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 or the hurdles were removed that, that permitted these energies to, right. to go out, uh, is to do the kind of work that makes possible a country that could both develop uh, new and interesting religious ways and ways the app that takes you from point A <laughs> to point B. Right, okay. uh, you know, to me, that, that is a huge accomplishment. Uh, and a huge project. I just wonder, to, to get back though to, to the original and big point, if this tension um, that Israelis have, I agree with you completely, by and large, resolved, uh, isn't isn't coming uh, home uh, across across the world. Well, I, let me, and that was, I think, Mike's thing. About, right. Uh, um, I'm going to let Mike uh, answer this. Well, what, one of the things it seems to me is the case, the, the <coughs> My answer is maybe. Um, I, th I think what, not what Israel has shown, uh, specifically represented in the turmoil of the last few years, but rather the turmoil uh, more generally in the Western world is, and, and elsewhere, is the, um, has a, reflects the fact that in a way the globalist perspective, the idea that you're a citizen of the world is, is nonsense. Um, uh, and the reason for that is very simple. It's not that it, you know you couldn't imagine trying to be that. It's just that um, you've got a body, and it sort of has to be somewhere, and um, and it has to have a home somewhere, and that people have begun to feel that much more powerfully. What what the reasons are for that, I'm not entirely sure, but they do feel in Europe that really, well, after all, there may be Frenchmen, not you know Europeans or Germans rather than Europeans, that there's something very specific about themselves in a very specific place where they belong. Now, uh, if that's a trend, then it is the case that that then Israel ha has ha will may play some role in. Um, in, in that development, at least uh, here I would offer as a healthy, a healthy way of, of, of resolving these things. Yes, we, yes, we are going to have you know, modern democratic principles and a certain kind of universal understanding, but we're also going to be living in some place, and that place is our home. In this regard, is it, is it uh, a little easier for Israel to assert, <laughs> to come back to the war, to assert the idea of a national identity or like, yes, obviously we're Israelis because all of our neighbors keep telling us around, we can't cross those borders, we can't go there, we are the people who live here. It's a little easier. I mean, obviously we know the cost of that, but if we're talking about, because I'm just not sure that a lot of people, I think a lot of people feel dislocations, feel, feel the, the actual dislocations, but it's just not clear to me that most people are like, oh, wait, so it's globalism. That's what these guys in Washington or New York or Silicon Valley have in mind. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Now I get it. It's globalism. Well, that's goofy, right? I mean, I, I just think that a lot of people do feel the dislocations, but the actual 
Um, but the actual nature of the way some people are arguing about it, I'm not sure. But again, well, Israel, I think that's true. I think that <coughs> perhaps because we're just at the beginning of this, people haven't right. reflected deeply enough to have. That is arguments. interesting. You're right. The argument has not been that. Cl it's still not clear. But you know, it it was formed. It was it was um, put by uh, someone suspect, Marine Le Pen, as the difference. You know, the, the the struggle now. I think she said, "There's no left. There's no right. There's globalists. There's patriots." And um, I, I think whatever her inclinations are, she's onto something. That that is the way that people are beginning to feel that as. The divide and as the tension, and a lot of people are drawn to the notion of patriotism. Now, Israel, you know, uh, that this was what struck me being there last last week in Jerusalem. Day. About sixty thousand children marching with flags down the street, right. happy with their country, right. uh, supportive of it, not in any vicious way, and so forth. That's that's a different. I, That's different than the image people have of patriotism. Uh, I want to open it up for questions in one yeah. second, but before we do that, I want to ask Mike about, because um, we are kind of talking about uh, your essay, your American Interest essay, uh, how I'll put it one way, but or quoting Marine Le Pen, putting it one way, but the way you put it is, Leal and I were speaking about your essay last night, but uh, somewhere people and nowhere people? Anywhere people. Anywhere people. Okay, so you can you just, right. people Same thing. Uh, so uh, could, you, could you just talk about that for a second, and then we'll then open it up? Yeah. yeah no, so just uh, in an effort to get at what uh, Hillel was just describing, um, it seems to me that across the West now, and I, I, I stole this idea from uh, David Goodhart in London, who was trying to make sense of British politics in light of the Brexit debate. Um, and he said that Britain is divided now between the anywhere people and the somewhere people. Uh, anywhere people are well-educated and they're engaged in professions uh, that they can do anywhere. So if they lose their job in Manchester, they can move to London. If they lose their job in London, they can move to Paris or to New York. Or, um, and they, they work in the media. They work in, uh, they work in software um, development uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, the anywhere people are, live in a place. They live in a place, and they don't have a lot of mobility. They're, le they're less mobile. They're less flexible. Um, and if uh, industry leaves their town, they're, uh, they're stuck in their town with no, uh, with, with no industry. Uh, the anywhere people make up about two-thirds. I mean, the somewhere people make up about two-thirds of the population, but the anywhere people run the show. They run our politics. Um, and I think the same thing is true in America now. This is what the Trump election is. We've got the anywhere people in Los Angeles and New York who are interpreting our politics in the media uh, to uh, uh, to the country, and then we have the rest of the country, uh, which is a predominantly a somewhere uh, a somewhere place, and they're not buying the, the the presentation of our politics to themselves. And it's interesting how you you have connected this before before this before this vocabulary before this language that you have now. You have connected this before. I know in our conversations, you have connected. Well, these are the p kinds of people, and they're not just evangelicals, but the people who have strong. Uh, feelings about their country, these are the kinds of people, Americans, who tend to support Israel. Yeah, well, we're far away, yeah, we, we, to move it back to the 67 war, I mean, there's a way in which Americans project their own fight about the character of America and its place in the world onto Israel. And so if you take a position on Israel, you're taking a position on the United States, right? That's why Fox News has, that's why Sarah Palin, when she was the, uh, when she was the, um, Vice President. No, when she was the governor of Alaska, she had an Israeli flag on her 
uh, on, on her in her office, right? And that that's not because she had a lot of Jewish donors. That there's like si there are six Jews in Alaska, and only they have their own name. Only only four of them. They have what? They have their own name. Frozen chosen. Yeah. <laughs> the frozen chosen. Yeah. Uh, anyway, she's. I was once uh, the, recently. I was driving in. in, in You're welcome of, for Mike setting you up for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You owe him. In the middle yeah. of nowhere in in Texas, and and off the highway, you know, up on a hill, there was a shack with this huge flagpole. At the top of the flag was a was a was an Israeli flag. I guarantee that was not a Jew that was living out there. Uh, so. Uh, uh, and then you have the universities who are, you know, profoundly uncomfortable with Israel. And the 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 first the first academic organization to vote in favor of the BDS in the United States wasn't the Middle Eastern Studies Association, which is expected. It was the American Studies uh, Association. That's, that's very interesting. And they yeah. the, these are people that study, you know. Um, right. the uh, uh, transgender truck drivers and and and, and in, in Latino transgender truck drivers and this is this is how you get ahead in in, in American studies. They, they if I put a, if I put a if I put a map of Israel in front of them and ask them to identify the Gaza Strip and Jerusalem, they couldn't even find it, right? But it, it's a, they're not talking about. Yeah, I, I, it's an exaggeration. Some of them could find it, okay? Uh, the, the, but they're not talking about Israel. Right. They're, not, they're not talking about Israel at all. They're talking about America. And the amazing thing, just to, to kind of get back to, to what you both said, I mean, in Israel, when this debate rages on, is it this? It, it really is very hard to be in anywhere when anywhere you turn. <laughs> There's like a border an hour later telling you, oh, no, absolutely not. Right. You're firmly a somewhere. Well, no, that, 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 that's what I meant. I mean, yeah. it's like you can't cross that border no. even if you, right. One, one element that uh, enters into this and makes the whole thing unpredictable for the future, it seems to me, is this, that it, it's partially what you just said in your original question, whether it's because people have a positive view of, of, of Israel or whether they just feel they have to defend it uh, and are reminded that they're, they're other. Uh, Israel, that's just its situation, but I would say that, you know, on the whole, Israelis have tried to make a virtue of a necessity and say we have a positive vision for why we're different. Uh, but you don't face that in lots of many parts of the world because your, your country isn't under attack. You don't have to serve as a soldier and so forth. Um, that era may come to an end, uh, and the and this is another reason I think that people. You mean that era for the rest of the world? World, yes. I mean, um, especially those parts of it that have been gotten very used to thinking of themselves as safe, and borders don't matter, and so forth right. and so on. Namely, Europe. Um, I think part of this, the relationship between the United States and Israel. Um, has something to do with the fact that at least some Americans still, um, well, first of all, America still thinks it has to defend itself, and by the way, quite a few other people, and still has to fight. So um, that gives you a, you know, a, a very different outlook on the <laughs> somewhere or anywhere uh, issue. Um, we're going to run a few minutes late because of the fire, uh, the fire alarm. In the, in the meantime, let's take a few questions. I saw. If you can, uh, Shoshana, if someone with a microphone can come down the center aisle here. The woman right here. Shoshana, if you could identify yourself to the rest of the... Rest I'm Shoshana Bryan from the Jewish Policy Center, and I'd like to go back to the war. I was okay. surprised to hear the words land for peace 
there in relation to UN Resolution 242. Land for Peace assumes that if Israel wants peace, it has to give up land. 242 not only doesn't say that, it inverts the process. Um, the Arabs are required to give Israel respect for sovereignty, territorial integrity, and political independence, and secure and recognize boundaries free from threats or acts of force. Interestingly, the only two countries that did that are the two countries with peace with Israel, and that's Egypt and Jordan, Sadat's visit to Jerusalem. All this peace process stuff is backwards, it seems to me, asking Israel to do a variety of things in order to induce the Arabs um, to give it peace when 242 says the opposite. They have to give, and then you make boundaries. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if, if you want to end the 67 war, which really hasn't ended, don't you have to go back to 242? Mike, do you want to, uh, since you raised the issue, would you like to? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just want to say, that's, thanks, Shoshana, and also it's very interesting, the idea that uh, the 67 war has not ended. It was very interesting. Thanks. Mike, if you would. Uh, well, I, I see it a little differently in that I don't think the 48 war has ended. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, I think that the uh, that there's a there's is, is, is nineteen is eighteen ninety seven over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's too early to tell. It's too early to tell. The uh, the uh, no, I mean there's uh, there's an effort to define uh, uh, if I uh, if I understand you correctly, I mean, there's an effort to define the the conflict in a very specific way. Um, and there are a lot of people who, for uh, a whole host of reasons, some of which in include that they, they really see it that way. I'm talking about in, in the Arab world, they actually see it that way. But then there are a lot of others who don't. Um, and you only need to, to listen to what Hamas says and to what the Iranians say and to what the Syrians say and so on to see that, um, or Hezbollah says, to, to, to see that, uh, um, that, the, that the armistice lines of, of 1948 are not really, are, are, are not really the issue. Um, um, I, I don't know that uh, this diplomatic formula or that diplomatic formula is the key to bringing about, uh, about peace. I think it's part of this larger uh, problem of the non-acceptance of Israel uh, in the land. Um, there's a gentleman over here. So if you can hold on one second, and then if you would wait for the microphone. And if you would stand and identify yourself, please. Uh, Abraham Avidor, um, and thank you so much for your interesting and thoughtful presentations. Uh, retired Foreign Service. And 50 years ago, I happened to serve as an Anglo tenant in the Israeli Air Force. So uh, I'd like to share a few uh, personal observations. Uh, the first one. I'm, I'm sorry, sir, if, if you could just keep it to a question that you direct at, at someone. That'll move a lot easier because I, I want to get to a few Can I just make two, two quick observations? Uh, first of all... I thought you make one observation. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, the transformation um, uh, of the country from being under siege to becoming uh, a regional superpower after the war, the country doubled, uh, population quadrupled, uh, the population increased by two, by, by two million people, the size of the country quadrupled, the mood changed from anxiety to euphoria and the consequence of the occupation were not well understood at the time. And, and finally, uh, the contribution of the, of the Air Force, the war started on, on Monday, uh, June 5th, 8 o'clock in the morning, when the entire Israeli Air Force was launched, except for a few planes. After low altitude <laughs> flying, they bombed the Egyptian airfields, both on the Sinai Desert and, and on the right and left side of the, of the Nile and, and the Suez Canal. 309 out of 340 uh, Egyptian planes were destroyed on, on the ground. And, 
After that, the Air Force worked around the clock, sortie after sortie, to bomb targets both um, in the West Bank and in Golan Heights after both um, uh, Jordan and Syria joined, uh, jo joined the war. Uh, the tanks advanced with Sir, I'm sorry, thanks. I really need to move on to another question. Thank you very much. Um, there's a gentleman in the back, Doug. I'm Doug Fife, I'm a fellow here at Hudson. Um, you, uh, you raised, which you, <laughs> all of you discussed the the change in in attitude toward Israel after '67. I think you all referred to it one way or another. Israel was treated in the United States very favorably at the time of the Six Days War. It was almost kind of a romantic celebration of, of Israel's victory in American magazines. I mean, I, and I remember it as a kid, you know, Life magazine had the big spreads uh, celebrating the Israeli victory. Um, that attitude obviously changed radically, rather quickly after the 67 war. Um, there was also, as Mike Duran was highlighting, the general idea that the Arab-Israeli conflict was the Arab states versus Israel that rather soon transformed into a view that the conflict was fundamentally between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And I'm wondering if you could just reflect a bit. I'd be interested in your thoughts on how and why those transformations in, in the way the world, in the way Americans in, in particular, but the world in general, viewed the Arab-Israeli conflict from the point of view of sympathy toward Israel and from the point of view of the nature of the conflict, uh, you know, who, who are the Israelis fighting? Why did that happen? When did that happen? And I'd just be interested in your thoughts on the transformation. Uh, Halal and Mike, if you can answer that quickly, because I want to see if we can get to one more question. Well, I, I don't think it happened that quickly, Doug, and, uh, and it certainly hasn't happened completely. But as I think uh, Mike said before, uh, a, part of, a lot of the fight in, about Israel in the end turns out to be a fight about ourselves, uh, about us Americans. And it has a lot to do with the development of the right and the left over time in this country, especially the left. Uh, and. Uh, and that's clearest, you know, every year now, every four years now at the Democratic Party convention when resolutions supportive of Israel either can't get passed at all or are, are, are very weak. So um, really one has to look at that, I think, much more than really what anything that happened particularly with Israel. The one big thing was, of course, the oil shock in the 70s, but by now that's, that's pretty much worn off. Mike, do you want to, or Leal, if you have something to say too. Mike, if you were. I, I see two big trends. The one is the one I mentioned, that the Arab state, not just Egypt, but the Arab states in general, um, want to disengage. They see the, the, the continued conflict with Israel as too costly for them. I mean, the, the 67 showed the Egyptians that the Israelis can really, really um, cost them a lot. Um, and shutting down the, the Suez <laughs> is, a, is a huge 
economic blow to Egypt, not just the, the military blow of the, of the war. And that, is, and that goes beyond just the Egyptians. They want to disengage. And they find a convenient way to disengage is to put the PLO forward and say, oh, it's their conflict, not ours. And it's, it's not a total disengagement, but it's a, uh, but it's a, um, it's a, a partial disengagement. But there's also a very uh, savvy calculation behind this, uh, and, 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 that, and that has to do with the shift in the West and attitudes in the West, and particularly in the United States, as a result of the Vietnam War. Uh, because the, the – I mean, if you think of a Carter's speech at, um, at Notre Dame after he's elected where he – this is a famous speech where he says that we've, we, there's been an inordinate fear of communism, right? So what's the interpretation? The Carter interpretation of, uh, of the Vietnam War is that this was a, a war of national liberation which the United States in its, um, its Manichaean vision – which, which the Republicans, right, in their Manichaean, uh, in, in their Manichaean vision of international politics and seeing a zero-sum game uh, between good and evil, between the United States and communism, um, saw this war of national liberation as a fight between the United States and the Soviet Union, and we went and we militarized our foreign policy and we put all of this, uh, expended all this blood and treasure, and for what? If we just would have realized that it was a problem of national self-determination, we could have worked with the Soviets, come to an agreement, and, and, and everything would have been fine. So that template starts to become the template to which the uh, American elite, and the Carter administration in particular, is, and on the left, is looking at global politics. We've been too muscular, too militaristic, too Manichaean, right? And uh, the, the Arabs recognize that, and they put the, the, the PLO forward. Uh, and so you find the Carter administration comes in immediately, on day one, with two absolute, um, uh, absolute firm convictions. Uh, one is that the, that the uh, Palestinian self-determination is the core of the conflict. And number two, we have to bring the Soviets in and we can work with them. And we're going to have a general conference and the two of us are going to sit down together and solve this thing. Uh, Liel? Um, okay. Amen. Uh, uh, <laughs> so we'll have time for the gentleman right here in the uh, blue jacket and the yellow Thank you. My question is sort of uh, moving past uh, the 67 war I, and looking forward today, uh, things I think of a lot different. Uh, we have Israel sort of a regional power militarily, economically, still a, a democracy. And then you have the Trump administration and Iran. So if we could sort of look forward now, What's the str global strategic sort of view? I think maybe Mike, if you could address that. In. Why don't we Why don't we do a speed round here as our final question before everyone goes? Uh, who would like to, Mike? Would you like to kick off the speed round? And it's and I do need speed round. Uh, giving you forty five seconds. Right. So Liel, uh, Liel is going to get a minute and a half. You just took some of my seconds. Sorry, you just threw me off my my game here. The uh, so um, if you think about. Uh, what I just said, you know, Nixon to Carter, you can map that on to uh, Bush to Obama, right? Obama came in. We militarized our foreign policy. We engaged in a, in a thankless war, um, and we need to pull back and be less militaristic, and that goes hand in glove with peace process, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's the key way that we show the rest of the world that we, are, um, that, that we, want, that we want to find diplomatic solutions to problems without uh, nasty, muscular uh, uh, muscular America. Trump comes in. Trump is a hybrid between Bush and Obama. What Trump said in the 
in the campaign was, I'm going to give you more with less. I'm going to give you more than President Obama gave you because he was unwilling to use military force and to, and, to, and to flex America's muscles. Not me. I'm going to ha you're going to see muscular America, but I'm going to do it with less than George Bush did. Because George Bush got involved in all these thankless, uh, you know, these, 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 uh, these thankless uh, initiatives like uh, spreading democracy around the world. Not me. I'm going to focus on, on, uh, on, on narrow national interests. And so you find that there's a, there's a tension in the Trump administration. The narrow, uh, the narrow national interest people who, who are thinking like Obama about pulling back, right, they want, they, they, they want, they want peace process and they want to, uh, they're, they're wary of Israel because the, the Mike, support for Israel this is, this correlates is to muscular, to Halal, muscular policy. That was fantastic. The other people Mike, think the opposite. Aside from so the extra minute you took. Halal, please. <laughs> 45 seconds. Okay. I, um, not, a, not a Duran 45 seconds. I, I think uh, you're mostly, in a way, asking about Iran. And I would say... Right. Um, I have the answer on Iran, but he stopped me. <laughs> uh, uh, look, it boils down to this. Iran will get a bomb unless someone stops them. And uh, if they get a bomb, then we will have not only an Iranian bomb, but we'll have prolifer uh, further proliferation. Um, no one has a clue as to how that, what, uh, what, what that would mean how dangerous it would be. You, you asked out. You, asked, you know, people have to prepare now for what's going to happen in 10 years out, and it may not take 10 years. Yeah. Um, I have little to add on, on the physical sense. Uh, on the metaphysical sense, I think that <laughs> attitudes are changing, uh, and they're changing very dramatically. Uh, to answer this question also, I think that part of the problem is that we have spent about 50 years looking for the penny under the lamplight, uh, you know, hoping that if we could only construct, if we could only define uh, the competence in the correct way and only construct some sort of framework for reconciliation, it's just around the corner. Uh, I think we're moving away from that. Uh, I think Israel is moving away from that politically, which is why you're seeing rise of political forces there that uh, were sort of unimaginable before. I think uh, America is too. And I think in a really interesting way it would open really new and hopeful coalitions of people around the world, not necessarily maybe here in the United States, but I think much of the rapprochement of sorts between Israel and, say, India and China uh, has to do with that actually very similar way of, saying, of seeing the world and understanding long-term interests. Uh, and to me, that is a dramatically hopeful change. I think a lot of the, uh, what we have seen uh, courtesy of, of the last president uh, propelled us into an era in which the chances for collaboration between Israel and the Saudis, uh, certainly the Egyptians, uh, is interesting to to say the least. Um, and so there's there's a lot of there are a lot of reasons to be very hopeful. They're just none of the reasons that we have, we would have have imagined say five years ago. Interesting. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Halal. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to Hudson and uh, C-SPAN as well. Thank you. Wow. Thanks. Thank you.